Welcome to the Agree to Disagree show, a show that discusses news, politics, and pop culture with your host, Luigi C. I want to see how many people I can agree to disagree with. We will try to solve life's great mysteries. Why is the sky blue? Why do we lean left or right? Why are we all nuts? Let's start the show. Welcome, everybody, to episode 72 of the Agree to Disagree show, where we discuss current events, politics, pop culture, and social issues. Guys, if you appreciate the show and you want to support it, all you need to do is like, share, and subscribe to the YouTube channel, Facebook, or Instagram page, or the podcast on any of the platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and or leave a review. That would go a long way to help the, uh, the algorithms in the YouTube sphere and get our message across. So thanks everybody um, for tuning into this episode. Uh, I've, I've been wanting to do something like this uh, on this subject uh, for a very long time, as I was telling my, my guests this evening on the show. And um, I'm really looking forward to this one because I feel that in terms of importance of subjects, I think there is no greater importance. And I want to help uh, share the the uh, memory and the how how severe and how important this matter is in Canada. So I'd like to to first of all dedicate tonight's episode uh, to all the children that were tragically taken from this world during Canada's horrific uh, history of residential schools in light of what's coming to um, to our attention and to our knowledge of what we know and what's what's happened in the past. Um, so tonight's guest is a um, host of Divine Resolutions, uh, Kathleen Doxtater. I hope I'm I'm not massacring the name. Uh, is an uh, Juanita woman living and working in her community of Juanita Nations of the Thames. Kathleen is actively involved in language revitalization, community well-being, politics, and lifelong learning. Yakuchani means she is happy in the Juanita language and that encompasses and embodies the work that Kathleen does to maximize her potential. Kathleen teaches the Juanita language at Saunders Secondary School and has been an elected counselor since 2016. She has a variety of interests, including creating beaded jewelry, makeup history, uh, artistry, excuse me, and media representation. Kathleen enjoys working with Indigenous youth and challenges the multiple systems that continue to disadvantage them. Indigenous youth are falling through the cracks and Kathleen is doing everything she can personally and professionally to raise up Indigenous young people and their voices. Please welcome to the show. I'm so happy to have her. Kathleen Doxtater. First of all, Kathleen, did I massacre your name and or the name of the tribe as well, please? Um, Oneida. Yeah, that's my community. Oneida. Okay. I was almost there. I was there. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was close. It was close. Okay. Okay. I, I got it. I got a dot pack now. First of all, uh, before we start, Kathleen, thank you so much. I want to say this publicly for doing this this evening. Uh, I think you could see the sincerity in my voice and uh, my excitement in doing this show uh, and sharing this, this message. And um, thank you so much. That's all I could say. 
Yeah, no, I think these conversations are really important so that we can build a better understanding of, you know, I'm just one Indigenous person and I speak from my Indigenous experience and that's like localized in my community. And so like I kind of talk about that on my podcast, how it's really important to position ourselves in the work because there are a lot of these systems um, have made it very difficult for Indigenous people to have a strong sense of identity. And that's something that even I've had to work on the last, you know, years of my life to be really mm. solid in knowing who I am and where I come from and to be proud of that. Absolutely, you should. And uh, you are, because as I mentioned to you, I did listen to your first two podcasts, which were fantastic. So tell tell the audience a little bit more about Divine Resolutions and what its purpose and what you're hoping to achieve from it. Yeah, so my podcast, Divine Resolutions, is to have a spin on, you know, the divinity of who we are. So a lot of times, you know, when we hear about how challenging it is to be Indigenous with, you know, I, my community doesn't have access to clean water right now. We've been on our third year of oil water advisory. You know, it's daily racism and discrimination that we face um, just doing regular mundane tasks like going shopping. So a lot of times, you know, I would always feel like, you know, it's so it's hard being Indigenous. And like, it was kind of like, why do we have to be this? Like, why can't we just be this the way that everyone else is? And so it wasn't until, you know, being secure in my identity and, and really accepting that, like, this is the way it is. And it is a, a value and a benefit of who I am. And so that's where that divine piece is that, you know, creator made me indigenous and, and to spread these messages of, you know, compassion and understanding, and as well as resolution. So having a nod to my community. So it's a lot of First Nations communities are, are reserves or are called reses. And so it's a unique set of circumstances that people from the reserves face or, or res. And so it's kind of like understanding our world a little bit in terms of how, you know, there's different slang and vocabulary and different um, cultural aspects that are just different than like whether, you know, Indigenous people living in the city or non-Indigenous people. So trying to open that, that window so people can kind of see into how unique and valuable uh, our perspectives are coming from our communities and how, um, how, but how challenging it can be at the same time too. So my my next episode that I'm editing is talking about education because as you mentioned, uh, you know, I, I do teach. And so I'm, and this year I'm at our board office for as a teacher on special assignment for Indigenous education. And so being able to have some time to create resources and to support teachers um, in doing this work of increasing Indigenous content into their, our classrooms has really been um, rewarding and, and something that I'm looking forward to, you know, maybe making more of a piece within my podcast work, but also just, you know, having fun too and creating community for other Indigenous folks that want to consider doing doing podcasts that is fantastic and it's so positive because i i felt that positivity uh, and just the playfulness of, of your of, of the podcast as well and getting that message across i i absolutely loved it and by the way guys it's going to be in the show notes where you're going to find all um all her social media and and podcasts and all that so you need not worry about that it will be in the show notes after once this uh, goes live on youtube and uh, on spotify and everything else so uh, on that note i wanted to Tell us a little bit, uh, well, first of all, about the Juanita uh, Nation of the Thames. Uh, where is it located? And tell me, tell, tell us a little bit more, the people listening, what, what you know, tell us more about the community. What is, what is it all about? 
Yeah, so Oneida Nation of the Thames is about, like, our nearest closest city is London, Ontario. It's about 30 minutes southwest. So we're kind of in between, like, Windsor, like, Detroit area. That's about two hours away, and Toronto is about two hours mm -hmm. away. So we're kind of, like, right in the middle, which is is good. Oh, my screen's gone. Okay, there yeah, we are. Sorry, so I lost. I lost. <laughs> no yeah, worries. the window disappeared period um no but yeah so we're kind of in a good like we're in southern ontario so we have you know a unique set of circumstances that's different than northern communities right like our uh mm. I, most things are fairly accessible which is good but like i said earlier like we don't have access to clean drinking water because of our um, infrastructure capacity right and the need for upgrades and so that's the challenge that it's like okay well you know our upgrades are going to cost millions of dollars and we don't have that money within our community capacity so it's like mm -hmm. looking at where we're is the municipality's responsibility because there's a, a fresh or a pipeline from lake huron a kilometer away from my community like so why can't that be extended and our community can be serviced with clean water? But it's like the systemic discrimination that Indigenous people face contributes to that, right? Because we're not seen as important enough to say, oh, yeah, you should be able to brush your teeth with your water. Oh, you shouldn't have to, you know, boil your water before you can consume it or to do like simple tasks. So, you know, those parts are, are really frustrating. Um, but, you know, we are located in proximity to other um, First Nations communities. So Chippewa of the Thames um, is our, our neighbor, as well as Muncie, Delaware Nation. And uh, so it's we're kind of the CMO. There's three communities here where okay. we work together, even though we're so different, because Oneida comes from uh, the Haudenosaunee people. So it's one of the members of the Six Nations. So our closest six sister community is Six Nations of the Grand River, which is near Bramford, Ontario, which is the largest uh, reserve in Canada. Mm -hmm. So that would be our sister community. And then our, our neighbors are... Uh, Anishinaabe and Lene Lenape so it's quite a diversity within this area of just who's here but originally Oneidas were up in upper state New York but we settled here in 1840 um, once we had um, we know that the Chippewas were here and and along the river to kind of just have a, a good way of continuing our way of life through agriculture because a mm -hmm. lot of the areas that we have around here is farmland um, but yeah, so there's that's kind of like the contextual basis. Oneida's had um, many challenges throughout our throughout just my lifetime in terms of um, fatal fires and stuff like that, which really make it um, challenging to like our community is in a constant state of grieving. So we as as an indigenous person and especially Oneida, like we when we have deaths in our community like our whole whole community shuts down right like we don't carry on with our council business like you know we um you know people are going to the wakes and helping and all that stuff so it's mm -hmm. like you, it's always on pause when those kind of things happen and so you know being in an indigenous community with lack of infrastructure there's a lot of of grieving that happens and so that becomes one of the major challenges that we face um as well as we have a green lane dump, which is down on the corner of the res, which um, is Toronto's dump. And so that's one of the um, environmental racism um, challenges that we have is that that dump like makes things smell really horrible. Um, and there's just it just you can't even you don't want to be go outside. And so it's like that just contributes to a poor livelihood and quality overall quality of life. There, there's there's so much to unpack there for me but um because you've brought it up so many times and this has always um i'm going to use the word 
perplexed me. Um, despite what we're going to talk about, and I was going to talk about this a little later on, but I want to bring it up now, as I mentioned, because you mentioned it, is the basic fundamental human right of a human being is clean water, right? That, that should be the fundamental clean. And for the life of me, Kathleen, I have never understood how a, and now we're talking, because when we're talking about discrimination, there's, 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 I, I look at it this way. I look at it, regular people, okay, population that are just too um, set in their own ways or, or not educated enough or just plain stupid um, and don't want to learn about our history of our indigenous people that were here thousands of years before us. And then we have how the federal government, and we're going to talk about that again, which I don't understand how they can consistently, consistently mess up such as, for me, being a simple, you just said it before, there's there's a, how far away, a kilometer away, water, clean water. I Can you, I don't know if you could shed light, make me try to understand this a little bit more. I want to understand how no matter which minister responsible for indigenous affairs and and no matter what, and you could, we could see uh, our prime minister cry as much as he wants. And, and because for him, for me, it's just an act. It's on camera. Until somebody gets this right, could, why is it so difficult? Can you please try to shed, try to make at least a little bit of sense for me? Yeah, if I knew, I, I would tell you because like it seems like a, a simple fix. Like it's money basis, right? So I know for Oneida, our number for a whole new water treatment is like around 50 million, right? So like give or take plus inflation, like stuff like that. So like our community is never going to have enough money to do that ourselves. And so because we don't, we're in lands where we don't have um, opportunity for economic development, right? Like we have a lot of um, non-Indigenous people coming into our community to get gas and cigarettes and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But it's not like, it's not foundational change. Like I think there is some um, benefits that are happening um, with Oneida. We have an Imagine Build. So that's one positive aspect where we have non-Indigenous um, Canadians that are helping our community to um, have money for housing because our current housing budgets are, isn't sustainable. So there's, there's so many issues. It's kind of like, where do we focus our energy? And if we yeah. are going to focus on water, then it's like, okay, like we need $55 million. So it's like, that's a lot. So then it's like, it almost seems unattainable. And then so people, you know, will our, our elected leadership will lobby the government. But then with the government's aspect, it's like, okay, well, who takes priority? Because like, there's communities that are on do not consumes, which is even worse than boil water, right? And so it's like, how do you like, I, my friend in Wata, like they were on a do not consume. And so it's like, how do we ensure that those communities and like, are like getting priority, right? Because like it's mm -hmm. it's they make you be on a long term boil water advisory for up to a year, and that's when you get like you're supposed to get more funding to help it, but it doesn't really change anything, right? They give you more money to give like to deliver water bottles, and that's where it's like it's to me it's like an oxymoron because we're put in these situations yeah. like we want to be stewards of the land and take care of it, but we're not put in situations where we could actually do that, right? So we have to have. Yeah um bottled water for everything and it's like well that isn't something that we want to we want to perpetuate right so there's so many like different 
um, challenges to like the access and clean water because it's like not just a jurisdictional issue of terms of like you know it's the the county but then because it's first nations it's federal so then mm -hmm. you have to have like all the ministers on the on the same page and like so you know part of it is just like the, the funding aspect but it's like the but then who takes priority right because like uh, there's a lot of communities that are in a similar situation I, I understand that but kathleen you know in my answer what i'm about to say right now might be simplistic but this is the way i think sometimes maybe some solutions are that simple if you look at the tracker just 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 of this government federal government in the last they've been in power for what eight years or whatever whatever it is um the amount of money and i remember doing an episode about this how much money they give away it literally your problem could be fixed in an afternoon of money giving from the federal government the way he gives money just again this has nothing to do with ukraine but how much money has he given just to ukraine now what i don't know i mean is it because it doesn't give you any votes is it because oh we gave you we gave you your reserves well we took the country from you we gave you we, we took your land from you so that's not a good enough reason so this is why i get so heated and and i could imagine you guys and uh, you guys i'm sorry i didn't want to how your community feels about this i i don't think that that's a valid excuse anymore because the money is there it's just you don't want to spend it because it's not going to give you any votes and it, it, yeah it comes down to priorities right like it's not a priority because like yeah a lot of indigenous people don't vote because it's not our system right so like we still have traditional forms of governance that operate within our community so it's like it's it's that whole like we need the government to do certain things, but then at the same time, like we want to maintain our, our sovereignty and our cultural integrity. So it's like, we can't just like start acting like Canadians because then they're going to be like, Oh, well then like indigenous people are just Canadian. So they don't need any like of this, yeah. like their rights. Like it's like, we have to execute our rights and like make sure that we're able to uphold them. Right. So yeah, it comes down to not making it a priority. So basically what you're saying and i'm probably going to say the same thing is that it's never going to be a priority for the federal government so so basically all we can do at this point is keep putting pressure on them um keep passing on the message making sure we don't forget how important this is but i truly don't i truly believe that not enough canadians either are not aware of the current living situations and the difficulties that your communities across Canada face on a daily basis, or they just don't want to care. So I, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to judge. Um, but enough time has passed that something has to be, has to be done. And, and another thing is how could you constantly make a mistake in, in terms of not putting the right minister in charge of indigenous affairs one after the other? Like how, you know, how much, you know, I, I, I shit on politicians constantly. And, and this is basically, you know, the purpose of my show and to bring light to these situations, but how, how, how often can you get it wrong? Then I, because at one point I'm going to believe that you're purposely getting it wrong and you're just putting someone there to make you, you know, symbolic and make it happy. Now we're doing something in reality. You're not doing nothing. Three years on a water boil advisory building a dump right next how far from from your community yeah probably about the same same distance as a clean water a kilometer or two like we can it, it, yeah you can see it 
so you know it it it's sometimes it makes me feel hopeless but i don't want i don't want to i don't want to be hopeless i don't i want to say that we could continue fighting this fight in hopes in one day that whatever government well in this case it is a federal government will get it right uh because this is the same federal government that that was responsible for the atrocities of what i wanted to talk about uh tonight is 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 a story that that came across came to light with me is i'm a huge tragically hip fan okay and the lead singer of tragically hip uh he rest in peace is gordon downey and gordon downey is of course a famous canadian beloved canadian and you felt it that he cared about everyone and in his later years he wanted to um serve a purpose in his life when he knew he was dying of terminal brain cancer and he came across a story of uh chani wenjak um who was a 12 year old oji boy boy who died from hunger and exposure after trying to find his way home from a residential school sorry <laughs> um so basically um Gordani, uh, sorry, I didn't think I was going to get choked up like that. Um, uh, worked before his death on a project um, which was called Secret Path. And he told the story of uh, little Charlie, which they called, uh, which his body was found by the railroad tracks near Kenora, Ontario. So let's put into context exactly what, if you could explain to us what the residential school system was in Canada um, that ran between the 1870s and the 1990s. That, that when I was doing my research, I couldn't believe 1990s, Kathleen. Uh, so if you could tell us a little bit and, and whoever's watching and listening, what exactly were the residential schools? Well, partially they weren't schools, right? They were like, yeah, a lot of people have referred to them as concentration camps. Like, yeah. you know, they were places where they took indigenous children, forcibly removed indigenous children from their homes and their families. And, you know, parents were threatened to go to jail if they didn't give up their children. But a lot of times, too, parents were put in like predicaments where they they wouldn't have the resources to be able to feed all their kids. So, you know, it was like, how how do I say no to like my kid thinking like thinking that your kid's going to get nutritious meals and it not being that way. Right. So the closest like we have a like Mount Elgin Indian resident or Indian Institute is um, in Chippewa of the Thames. So that's like just down the road from me. And so that's our, our local um, residential school. And so a lot of people from these areas went, went there, but also they went to the mush hole in six nations. So that's the long, the earliest residential school. And that's probably one of the biggest and one of the, the most well-known and it's called the mush hole because they would make them eat mush. They wouldn't get any type of nutritious food. It was just like dirt porridge. And it was like, if you couldn't eat that, then you had to like have it for dinner. Like it was just like very inhumane is the on, like the only way of describing what these, these places were because they didn't teach the kids any schools. Like it was like you, they taught them how to be workers. Like that's, they taught them how to manage the farms, how the girls to do all the like typically feminine duties of like cleaning and laundry and cooking and stuff like that. And all the kids were doing the farm work and they were having to raise the livestock. So there wasn't any learning that was going on there except of Christianity. Right. So they took away our language and our cultures forcibly. They, you know, 
there was a lot of abuse that happened to um, indigenous children that went to these these places and and that caused a lot of hurt and a lot of harm to our communities because people were ashamed of who they were. They were told they can't be who they are because who we are, who we were was uncivilized. We were savage. It was really, it was negative. It was terrible. And so that's why there's been so much shame for our people to be proud of who they are and where they come from and remember and reclaiming their language. Like that's what we're, you know, I see it with my community these days. Like a lot of people are challenged with coping with this intergenerational trauma and coping with the negative um, stigmatisms that are placed upon indigenous people that you see in the media because that was there was taken away from them they weren't raised by their parents they were raised by you know in these institutions that didn't show them love didn't show them anything but shame and punishment and so yeah we feel that in our communities because uh, like oneida specifically like we're down to like 20 fluent speakers left of our language and so wow. we're yeah like it's in dire need and so it's like it's really stressful for anyone who's in language revitalization because it's like we're running out of time like if we ha don't have you know first language speakers that we're producing you know in our in immediately then we run the risk of our language going extinct and so that's a real that's a real big barrier that because our language is who we are yes. and that's where like getting being in the role of like starting to learn language and teach language like it's just like opened my eyes to know so much more about who I am and where I come from and how beautiful and how powerful that is but like that's the thing that so many people aren't even started to get there because they're still dealing with so many demons that come from you know how their parents were raised and how their parents raised them like it's like it's common in some families that you know parents didn't have the weren't equipped to be able to tell their kids they love them because they didn't know what that was like so it's like it really seeps into our families and seeps into you know our our homes and how do we cope with all of this trauma and how do you healthily cope like that's where it's like yeah. even if you were to go get help the medical the western medical system doesn't value indigenous knowledge and doesn't even care about indigenous people like i have so many people in my family or in my circle that have just died at the hands of the healthcare system because they don't care about indigenous people we're, we're just less than to them so they'd rather just see us die like that's the reality mm -hmm. of it and that's like the the harsh truth that i think that many indigenous canadian or many Canadians need to recognize is that like indigenous people are dying on the daily going missing being murdered like and there's like there's stuff that could be done about it not just not just monetarily like it's like like you said like educating yourself and knowing like you know befriending indigenous people and knowing some of the things that they went through and how they navigate life and just like it just helps you check your privilege because i know like working in education like you know a lot of teachers are, are privileged and so it becomes like this kind of like taboo word because they don't want to talk about it because no one wants mm -hmm. to address their privilege because i think in mainstream society we've kind of made it seem like privilege is a bad thing and i don't <laughs> think it necessarily is a bad thing i think it's what you do with it right yes. so if you acknowledge that you have privilege and you use your privilege to amplify uh, marginalized people's voices then that's to me is a positive that's not a negative but i think when people are ignorant willfully ignorant to their privilege and and don't address some of the benefits that they get in society because of their privilege that's when it can become dangerous right yeah i, I love what you said in terms of you can admit to having privilege and and i do obviously i'm privileged to grow up in canada and and not go uh, hungry and have an education and have loving parents. So I, I was dealt a great hand. 
um, but it's what you do with it. I, I, I love that, what you said. And before I ask you the next question, I, I want to read something out because this has to really hit home because it doesn't until you see numbers. All right. So the Indian residential schools operate in Canada between the 1870s and 1990s. Let that sink in for a moment. The last Indian residential school closed in 1996. Children between the ages of 4 to 16 attended Indian residential schools. It is estimated that over 150,000 Indian, Inuit, and Mitzi children attended Indian residential schools. Information exists in archives about the deaths of children, which has contributed to the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation's Memorial Register. As of May 24, 2022, the register has 4,130 confirmed names of children who died while Indian residential schools. Apparently, this number could be significantly higher. So I just want everybody who's listening to this and watching this, let those numbers um, seep into your mind in terms of what the Canadian government um, and the church at the time did, um, how horrific it is. And I can't wrap my, wrap my mind around it. Um, so all I could do is try to understand it. And all I could do is play my part in saying that this never happens again. So um, you spoke briefly about, and you know, I'm going to admit, Kathleen, I'm going to admit here that I too was naive and I too, I was quick to judge when, I don't know, at one point, maybe in my 40s, I said, Luigi, you got to grow up here. And I started my podcast and I started doing my own research and I came across, and unfortunately, I don't remember the name of this um, documentary. It was fantastic. Only then did I understand, and you mentioned before, intergenerational trauma. I understand the impact of the residential schools and the treatment of indigenous um, communities across Canada and how that can transfer intergenerational. You said it perfectly. After I, that was an eye opener to me when I watched this documentary. Uh, I believe this is roughly around the same time when I came across uh, Charlie's um, story through through Gord Downey, and um, I I understand that. So so if you could explain again, how, because of that, what are the long, last the long lasting effects of residential schools? What what, can you explain again to me how, because you mentioned, you did say it. So if you could just repeat again, you know, if a parent grew up there, sh shown no love, being torn from your parents, from your family, from your community, from your culture, from your language and saying, here, you got to learn this. You're not good enough. Then you have children. How are you going to show them love? So it's a, it's like a, a circle of mistrust and imagine a child not growing up shown love how do you want them to be as parents when they're adults so if you could shed light a little bit on that as well please yeah i think when we talk about intergenerational trauma we have to balance it with intergenerational strength as well because i think a lot of times this this work and this these discussions can be really heavy but when i look at mm how we've retained some of that like it reminds me you know how strong oral tradition are and how you know there were little kids in residential school that held on to their language and spoke it in secret and did did all those things mm -hmm. so it's like 
yeah, as much as that intergenerational trauma is there and, you know, horrific things happen to a lot of children and they they didn't know how to cope with that because they weren't given tools to cope with it. And I think even today, many Indigenous youth don't have tools to cope with, you know, the trauma that they're facing on their daily lives. So, you know, when I talk about intergenerational trauma, it's because like it's it's in our DNA, right? We There's different, definitely different studies that go in to talk about how your DNA changes over time and how, you know, that tra- those trauma responses are in there. And so, like you said, when, you know, when children are ripped from their homes and like ashamed of who they are and have no sense of identity or have a false sense of identity, because for a lot of times it was like, okay, hey, you're Christian now, you know, you mm-hmm. don't have your traditional ways or your traditional knowledge. You don't have any of your traditional medicines. You don't like there. So it's like, you totally like, you're you're just a shell of a person and then when you then you're going out into the world and you're having children like how do you as a shell like how do you how do you give that love to your children and some there's some parents that are survivors and you know they kind of cart meant to, they put it into like a, a box and they left it there and they they don't talk about it and that's why there's like they that's how they got through it right yeah. whereas like some people you know that when they do certain things that box comes open and and those that trauma happens to their family right whether it was some of the abuse that was modeled to them in residential schools and that comes into their family Mm. and that keeps these cycles going like it's like i i like to look at it as like you know everyone's dealing with so much and there's not always um ways of supporting them and so like you said like i and it's like we talked you mentioned privilege right like i have privilege in my community because like i i have a house and i have a car like those are those are privileges with my community and like it's relative economic privilege being a teacher being educated Mm -hmm. but it's like i almost had to colonize my mind to be able to get through our education system right so it's like and now I'm having to go back and do that work of decolonizing and reconnecting to my language and my my ways of doing it, right? And so we're seeing seeing that healing happen within our communities, and there are being you know younger kids that are being raised in language and having a strong sense of identity. But you know, there's generations where like it's just like they were they were they were not they were ashamed to be who they were, right? Yeah. And so that's that's tough because it's like even like my mom's generation like she went to day school and they were still doing some of the same things in day school and you talk about how like you know we don't want residential schools to continue but if we look at how the modern day child welfare system is happening and the overrepresentation of indigenous people in the child welfare system and in the prison in our prison system like it's continuing the, the marginalization mm. of indigenous people has continued yeah. it's just taken a different form we yes. just don't have these places anymore that are segregated like that to be like this is a residential school it's like when we look at how many um indigenous children are in foster care and how many indigenous children are taken from their family still because that's happened in my community happened in my family that you know they had capable family members that could take care of the child but no it's in a it's in a family with a non-native person and it's losing you know they're who they are and so that's another challenge that we're still faced with today yeah. what we also have to understand is um you you don't re-engineer this thought process and behavior in one or two generations right kathleen correct me if i'm wrong right that's going to take multiple generations in order to re-engineer thinking and being proud of your culture and your language and coming back to family and your roots um because, I mean, it, we see it. It's so easy to lose that. We just lost it in a generation. I, I come from Italian uh, um, immigrants, right, that, that came from Italy. And look, we lost it literally in one generation, right? 
max max too so could you imagine how much time it takes to re-engineer that and come back to your roots and so and, and everything you said and, and anybody and, and i wanted to speak about that again that i don't want to hear anybody say to me in terms of um you know look look let's look at this okay how do you want to have a healthy and vibrant community which which to me the ing- indigenous people of canada more than deserve when they have poorer health you've already alluded to that health uh, access to healthcare systems lower levels of education inadequate housing and crowded living conditions lower income levels higher rates of unemployment higher levels of incarceration higher death rate among children and youth due to unintentional injuries and higher rates of suicide and you could take all of these eight points which which i think is is eight of the the most important points right now um affecting the indigenous communities and you could directly relate it to the treatment and relate it back to residential schools and it's still going on today like you just said kathleen so um on that what what could we what could I know it's not. What can we do to make sure that this never happens again? Or, you, you know, now you just told me that it, it literally still is basically going on. So, and just in a different capacity, right? So, I don't, what, what, what could we do? What could we do together as a country to make sure it doesn't? Yeah, so continuing to have these conversations, but continuing to, you know, read from Indigenous authors and educate yourself, like those are small ways that individuals can make progress. But also, like you said, lobbying and advocating uh, from your MPs and your local your local governments to say, what are you doing to address the water crisis in First Nations communities? Because that's a, that's a priority. Like if the constituents make it a priority, then it has to, they're, they're the ones with the voting power, right? Like I said, mm-hmm. like many Indigenous people choose not to vote. So if you if the constituents in your, your mainstream Canadians say that, you know, this is important to me and I want this to be a part of but like part of it is like they don't like it just seems like they're not ever going to care because it doesn't affect them. Right. Like we're yeah. still isolated in reserves. Like, yeah, there's more indigenous populations in in communities, but a lot of times it's your most vulnerable population. Right. It's your marginalized yeah. population, your homeless population. And so just like building like opening your heart a little bit like i think taking a pause and like recognizing that yeah i I don't have like like i i always like to analyze like whether it's like my friend group okay is there diversity in my friend group like and and because that's who you're surrounded by right and that's Mm -hmm. who the information is going to feed you so if it's all people that are all similar to you and have the same amount of privilege then maybe you need to challenge yourself and get out in spaces where you can meet new people or or you know even challenge your thinking so like when we're working with teachers we're saying okay what are some things that you already do that you could throw in some indigenous voices if you love to read like read some indigenous authors if you like to listen to podcasts listen to in some indigenous podcasters like there are so many ways i think individuals can like just make a little bit of shift because that's where like even as an indigenous person i'm always trying to say okay am i looking at this from you know um like to to try to combat some of the anti-blackness that there is within the indigenous community like so am i looking at this from an ally to black people am i looking less from an ally to my friend who's deaf like so i'm trying Mm -hmm. to like you know really open my eyes and be like okay like i i have here like all these different privileges right but it's like how do i have empathy and compassion for you know my friends and then i advocate for them 
I think um, the last thing you said, and I've spoken again about this in my podcast, is I'm seeing sort of a, I wouldn't say a revolution, but that word empathy coming back into the conversation. Empathize, understand. It, it, it could go such a long way. Put yourself in the shoes of someone or try to understand them. Um, so I think it's coming back. It's a slow process, but I, I, I believe that, I genuinely believe in my heart that people are trying to be better human beings. So you you, you already answered my question. I was going to ask you, what can we do to better understand the situation and to help the situation? So you've already eloquently answered that question. So here's a, a two-tiered question is, and I know there are, unfortunately, because I've heard them and I, I'm not, I'm not going to, take myself out of the equation because I don't want to seem like I'm perfect. I'm far from it. But what are the most common mis misconceptions that Canadians have about Indigenous communities? And and what do you want Canadians to know the true part about your community and your culture? Yeah, there's so many misconceptions. And I think like I started facing them really young. And I think when you start facing them, you're in shock. You're like, wait, what? Yeah. Like, did this just happen? Like, so like a lot of times, like people just think we're all on welfare, like, and people think we don't pay taxes. So like, as a public school teacher, like I pay income tax, I pay a lot of income tax. And so that's one thing too, like, just because people, you know, like our First Nations doesn't mean they don't pay taxes, right? There are mm -hmm. certain instances where that is applicable, but a lot of times where it's not, right? So, you know, that's the big thing I hear like, oh, well, my tax dollars pay for it and stuff like that. And it's like, well, not necessarily and not fully. Yeah. Like, that's the thing too. Like, there's not a lot of information about, um, oh, I can't even remember what it's called, but like the trust fund that Indigenous people had that was in their name that then Canada mm -hmm. used to like build Canada, right? So it was like million dollars trust fund that like you know that's where a lot of these treaty rights come out too and like i guess that we should acknowledge like this week is a, as treaty recognition week in ontario and as well today's international inuit day so i think that's um a key point you mentioned earlier about how indigenous people have the highest rates of suicide like inuit people have the highest rates of suicide among the world because they're they're dealing with you know remoteness and isolation and like they can't even like afford to live because of how expensive things are right yeah. So that's one of the misconceptions is like that we're behind the times and that we're not, you know, we're not with it. And there's a lot of Indigenous people doing amazing things and giving back to community and trying to help out every way that they can. And it's just like, it seems like it's all diminished when like there's so many different um, instances about alcoholism. Like that's where like I feel like for a lot of Indigenous people, like that's, that's what they speak to because that's something that's kind of brush stroked among us that like, oh, you're native. Oh, like, you know, there's like so many assumptions that come with that and mm -hmm. that's where it's like it really paints like every person's um relationship with it in a negative light and it's like i, I don't want to like be say that it's not a problem because yeah it is but like if we understand that like it's treated as an addiction and so like that's where it's like 
how do we deal with addictions? Like you're not, you have to have compassion and understanding to say what, what got people to this point. It was circumstances. It was trauma. It was like, it was so much that like leads to that. It's not just, okay, you just picked up a bottle one day and started becoming an alcoholic. It's like, no, there's, there's way more to that. And like, so that's, those are the ones that really get me. And that really impacted my life is like, you know, oh, like you're native, like you like to drink or like where people would tell me like when I was going to post-secondary, they'd be like, oh, you're going to school for free. And it's like, yeah, but not every not all indigenous people get to do that like there's you know my my band gets funding like but that's through treaty rights right that's through mm -hmm. like there's so much in there that needs unpacking that like that people can't have these misconceptions like there's yeah there's a lot and i think that's the most frustrating part is like i feel like we address one and then more come out because there's so much anti-indigenous rhetoric because i think people still wish that we just like became Canadians. They still wish that we just absorbed into the body politic and then magically our problems would go away. And it's yeah. like, no, like, because we're, we're still here and we're still, you know, speaking our languages, we're still, you know, practicing our ceremonies and that's like really powerful. And to me, that's empowering. And that kind of like, and even though for all those misconceptions that people have about me, that's like, now I'm at the point where I can tell them, I'm like, no, you're wrong. And this yeah. is why. I, um, I think the most important part, and we've discussed this at length tonight, and a lot of it has to uh, go go back to history, is that there are contributory there's contributory reasons why someone's an alcoholic. Why is it that if there's an alcoholic and he's a white male or a white woman, um, it's oh there, there's other strenuating circumstances, but the, an indigenous person is an alcoholic. Now there's a different set of rules and the reasons why he became. A, it all comes down to one thing, ladies and gentlemen. It comes down to trauma. It comes down to um, their social and, and and geographical environment. You said it right. Even um, in terms of suicides and and or even alcoholism and boredom and guys, the, the most uh, the most uh, difficult thing for a human being is the sense of loneliness that could literally kill a human being. So when you said that, that really hit me when, when you said that stat of, of, of Inuits, um, the Inuit people, um, I, I didn't know that. So that really hit home. Um, so there's this, you know, there's like two sets of rules. This, and, and there's I, so I many what, layers, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think yeah. like as indigenous people are always held under a microscope. So like, if there's something bad that happens here on my res, it's all, it goes all over the news in London. Mm. Right. So like, you know, a couple, a couple of years ago, they found, um, there was, uh, there was a shooting. Right. And so like the same thing could happen in London, but it's just another Tuesday. Like, but sure. when it happens here in my community, it's like not like, it's like media coverage and it's like, but yeah, the same, the, the same token isn't, isn't happened yeah. when, you know, a lady that down my community was like killed by cops. Like that's yeah. like, she was, they were in their care and like they deprived her of, of medical help and she died. And so that didn't get the same coverage as like, it's like, they want to highlight that there's like native on native crime. Like we're, we're just a reckless violent people, but yeah, they won't violent. They won't highlight the violence of colonialism and ongoing like 
police brutality towards indigenous people and all those things that like hold them accountable they're only going to highlight the things that they make us look bad because it perpetuates these stereotypes and these narratives that (laughs) can further separate us and make us second class citizens in canada right like that's that's what happens and that's what continues to happen and so if we don't have people like because if you go to any like cbc anything about indigenous there's all those racist comments will come out and that's what bugs me too when people like there was um, different protests going on for the pipelines out West. Right. And we had a solidarity protest out here and we did a rolling blockade um, on the 401. And then, so instead of seeing as like, yeah, we're like uniting like indigenous people, like across Canada. Nope. It was like, Oh, like all the comments were like, Oh, don't these people have jobs? And it's like, yeah, I took the day off. Like I'm like, it's just like, it's like, it's so frustrating. Cause it's like, would you be saying this about anybody else? But because we're holding your systems accountable, it's like, we're the problem. We're the problem. Well, there's always been that two tier system. Right. And, and, and I think you mentioned before that that's what the importance of individual um uh and and not uh attached to cbc in terms of news or ctv or uh, national news outlets that's important of bringing out these messages because we don't have any we're not perpetuating nothing that for me it's just bringing out the truth and and i could see it it's 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 clear as day the the reasons why it's being done right i could see it as and it's as clear as day that there's always that 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 two-tier system right it could be the same situation but one is indigenous person one's a regular person or or white male or whatever and the rules are completely different um it, it was you know with 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 the coming out of the the horrific news of the residential schools and the mass graves that were were found do, do you think that the national day of reconciliation um is enough or is it a starting point um and and i think to me it's not one day is not enough definitely um but i think you already answered my question i just want to know do, do you think is that is this a good start in terms of starting the conversation i think it could be a better start if like it was like unified in terms of how um people's approach work because like here in ontario right like it's it's still kids kids still go to school right like i think it's uh like the federal workers have the day off right like our community schools close down like it is to me it's a good opportunity for indigenous people to gather and to build community and to remember that we're still here and and that's that was to me really powerful that happened this past year Mm -hmm. but at the same time like how many like even at these events like yeah there's some non-indigenous people there but not that many so it's like where are the rest of them and that's like i feel like it needs to be like an ongoing personal commitment so i'm like it's not like on holiday we'll never do that right because anytime anyone like everyone's so busy like you know that if they get a holiday they're going to use that for themselves which i like i don't begrudge them of that but at the same time like how are you opening your mind how are you you know learning more so it's like yeah, I understand that schools are a way to do that. But I also think it depends on the capacity of the people who are in these schools and mm-hmm. their willingness to be open-minded and their willingness to understand because, you know, depending on what school you're in, you're going to have different different experiences. And so, yeah, I, I think 
highlighting indigenous people like needs to happen like more than that because like there needs to be focus on the good and that's like even with some of the first nation studies courses that i support like when they look for news articles like it's always the negative so you know if yeah. you have the opportunity like sharing some of those good stories like that's where like i ha like even this past summer like we had some of our oneida community members playing out at the world's lacrosse tournament in edmonton Alberta or um, oh, manitoba cool. and like even in um across like across the sea and stuff like that like and i'm just like wow how come there's not news about this right like it's not there's not news about those positive these role male role, these male role models in my community that are making waves in the lacrosse field but like wow. as soon as something bad happens there's they're like that's the first thing they're talking about so i was trying to have a balanced approach with what you're taking in too like if you are doing some heavy heavy work in terms of like learning about residential schools and learning about intergenerational trauma or the 60 scoop like there's so much and then it's like okay well balance that out okay so who are some you know high profile indigenous people that you could have readily information about right so we're talking about inuit people like there's jordan tutu like if it's so if your interest is yeah. hockey who are some indigenous hockey players right like we know canada has a huge thing for hockey right carrie yes. price like there's like and that's one thing too like I, the more i learn too the more i can share that with people and the more I can think about, like, you know, there's so many connections and so many Indigenous people, like, Indigenous Veterans Day is tomorrow. So, like, researching who's Francis Petamagalbo and how is he, like, the best sniper in the in the wars and how, like, how, why is there Indigenous Veterans Day? Like, to me, that's important. Like, why would we need a separate day? But that's because Canada won't recognize the contributions that Indigenous people made on the 11th. So it's like, yeah, we need our own day because, like, we need to highlight those contributions because they were foundational. There were so many people that enlisted in the war. Like, there was, there's so much that goes on that isn't talked about and that when like our first nation soldiers came back like all the non-indigenous soldiers got the land and got other things that they were promised non-indigenous mm -hmm. people they lost they lost their status through enfranchisement they came back they didn't get the same benefits so it's like it's so frustrating because like that continues to happen right like we yeah. still have an indian act and that still kind of controls like i carry around a card that says certificate of indian status so it's like how if we're not even willing to like work on like, these major policy changes to make sure that indigenous people aren't losing rights but are able to fully implement you know whether it's hunting and fishing rights and how we've seen like out east with the with the micmac and their um rights to um a livelihood and how mm -hmm. they were like violently attacked by non-indigenous people for trying to have one one lobster farm like it's like it's it's just mind-boggling like there's so many instances where it's like we need um just people to understand a little bit better that we're we're just out here trying to survive yeah. like we're in, it's not like we're taking everything for ourselves and leaving nothing left for the settlers it's like we're just saying can we can we survive a little easier now like it's been it's been hard like i just want to go to the store and not be followed around like these things that i think people take for granted and it just like to me it becomes normalized and i feel like as indigenous people we don't talk about them all the time because it's normalized because we're just like oh yeah like this was a tuesday this was like they yeah. followed me around and i and and but like it's like the more we talk about it the more we're like yeah canada you got some work to do like you got some like training like so even in teacher education training like i had one diversity class and it was it was taught by a non-indigenous person like who was like had the most privilege it was a white lady and like it was an older white lady so it's like how are you going to tell me about like the when you like you have no experience to speak yeah. it's like <laughs> 
like it's it doesn't make sense right and so like changing all of how we're doing things and like not just in like uh, like younger kids education and and high school but like beyond too like at post-secondary like i know there's calls for um making indigenous studies like mandatory but that's like always a a tricky thing because i feel like if you make people learn it they could also just like be like bitter about it right yeah and that's when yeah so i think but there are um ma like massive online um classes too but i think it's the university of alberta they have indigenous canada and so even if you can't take the class a lot of those are streamed on youtube as well so those are some resources that i've directed people to because people are always like i want to know more right and it's like you can't always like have these types of <laughs> long conversations with people because it's just like it's emotional labor and it's exhausting because yeah. the number of times that people are just like you know, want to tell me how I should identify or want to tell me about Indigenous people and want to, like, diminish my experience and what I've been through. And it's like, yeah, it's going to be different. There's over 633 First Nations across Canada. Like, that doesn't include, like, all the different Métis and all the different Inuit communities and, like, the dialectical differences. Like, everyone's going to have different ways of doing things. And so that's where I try to, like, remember, like, I'm one person from one community and this is this is my experience. But, like, there's a lot in there. And that some there's some commonalities that after talking to friends and like yeah this is a problem so i think if if i'm gonna sum this up i realize that it's a macro problem that needs to be solved slowly on the micro level one thing at a time i think uh, we've covered how we can educate ourselves start asking questions it's very easy look it took me a couple of minutes a few google things and I found so many articles and statistics and stories. It's not difficult, guys. We're not in the 1800s here. We have the internet, okay? Um, let's educate ourselves. Let's try to make a difference. Reach out to your MPs, like Kathleen said. Especially for me, for me, the, the, the water is, I don't know why it just stays in my, for me, that's, I think, is going to be my battleground. Um, but above all, get rid of your misconceptions. And I, and I hope that having kathleen on tonight um even if if one person watching this or listening to this will open their eyes or uh think things differently then i think I've, we've succeeded and that's all i want that's all i want this show to be so um i i thank you so much from the bottom of my heart kathleen for being here tonight i really enjoyed it i loved uh thank you for sharing your story with us um uh there's so much more i think i'm gonna have to have you on again <laughs> there's so much more i wanted to to talk to you about and i and if you say yes i would definitely have to have you back on again um and uh all your social media is going to be in the notes guys where you could uh, uh contact kathleen and follow her on instagram and all the podcast uh, platforms that she's on and um that's it is is any last thing that you'd like to say kathleen no, I think I said a lot and I agree. I think you did a good summary of like all the all the takeaways, right? Like that's the thing. Like if you just take one thing away, it's like just open up your heart a little, you know, have a little empathy and compassion for your neighbors and for your local indigenous people and what they're going through and how it's not it's it's not our fault. 
and that's it's not nobody's fault like that's the thing too like these yeah. are systems of oppression that like yeah people uphold and and we have white supremacy that we uphold but it's like just trying to check in with yourself like that's kind of even what i do right as a marginalized person i still you know can uphold white supremacy mm -hmm. excellent thank you so much uh, again kathleen uh, it was uh, truly eye-opening and I absolutely enjoyed it. So stay on. We'll chat a little bit offline and uh, we'll just play out the outro. And thanks everyone for watching and listening. I hope to see you on the next podcast. Thanks for listening to the Agree to Disagree show. Make sure you like, subscribe, and tell all your friends about it. Until next time.